The more doctors come together and are vocal to tell patients that they have a choice to see physician, to tell the legislators this isn't right. So now physicians know, now we need to make sure that the word is getting out to patients as well. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of Ivy Clinicians. Our guest today is Dr. Debbie Fletcher, an emergency physician from Shreveport, Louisiana. She is the immediate past president of the ASEP Workforce Section. Debbie has advocated for ensuring that physicians practice in the way that patients would want them to practice. She's a true emergency medicine leader and advocate, someone I'm honored to have come on the show. Debbie didn't plan to be engaged in the policy and politics side of emergency medicine at all. However, four years ago, I was working as a regular emergency physician in a community hospital and our hospital contract was taken over by a corporate management group and as a surprise after they decided that they would replace the part-time physicians with non-physicians. That's really what got me interested in this. I started Googling how this could happen, how a doctor could lose your position. And there wasn't a whole lot really about it. Most people online said it couldn't happen. And now we're realizing it's happening and it's happening pretty regularly. Debbie started contacting organizations like ASAP and the leaders there were just as appalled as she was. There was a bill in Louisiana that would grant nurse practitioners independent practice. Debbie helped start a group organizing physicians of different specialties. With those allies, they hired a lobbyist and defeated the bill on the Louisiana Senate floor. To Debbie, her advocacy experience opened up the questions of, what is the definition of the practice of medicine? Where does the practice of medicine end versus the practice of nurse practitioners? And how can patients stay protected? Dr. Fletcher continues to fight for the rights of physicians. That gave everyone just a fear of what could happen. So that fall, we were talking with our state medical society and some other physicians, and we wanted to be proactive for the next year instead of always being on the defense. Doctors, with all of these scope battles, we didn't really see it coming. Doctors are you know, head down doing the work, and you didn't realize that this was going on behind the scenes so much. So we decided we wanted to be proactive. This past legislative session, they, our, our medical society decided that they did not want to bring any bills proactively. So some of us were a little more concerned. So Jamie Quo, Et Shaheen and I in Louisiana banded together and we started having weekly meetings in January of last year. And we've got to do something about it. Let's figure out what we can do to be preemptive. So we decided we would form a nonprofit called Louisiana Physicians for Patients. And we modeled it after some other nonprofits that have started pro-physician recently. Indiana uh, recently started uh, Hoosiers for Safe Healthcare, HASH, um, by another 
physician advocate, uh, Mercy Hilton, and then Texas uh, has also started Texas Physicians for Patients and the Texas 400. So we spoke with both of them and how they started their groups. So we we did it. We uh, hired a lobbyist group. We interviewed four different groups and we chose the best fit for us. And then we had them hired. We decided you know, we were going to pay them, but we needed funding for this. So we started fundraising with all of the physicians across the state. And Jamie uh, made our Facebook page aligned with this mission. We have been very successful uh, getting physicians involved, sending emails to their legislators. We have had a number of in-person meetings. The lobbyist firm that we hired is fantastic and really knows how to maneuver the system that doctors just don't know. One of the things that lobbyists try to try to get us to do is to focus on a few simple messages that that resonate with the legislators. What messages did you feel like were uh, most effective? We were able to turn everything back and focus on the patients and patient protection and safety. So all of the years past, part of the way the nursing uh, and nurse practitioners framed it as the doctors were greedy, it was a turf battle, and that's why we didn't want them encroaching on our territory. We were able to turn that around, which is the truth for us, and show them it's not about me. I, right now, you know, work in a VA system, so I you know, can say at this point what I'd like. So it's about the patient. And one Jamie said one of the legislators would stopped her in the hall near the end of last uh, session and told her how successful we were because we changed the focus to what is best for the patient. And they saw it. They saw we were not greedy. We really wanted the best thing for patients. Another thing that you look at and one of their talking points for nurse practitioner independent practice is uh, rural health care. They are really promoting access to care. We have been able to turn that around and show them that the access to care is not improved with independent practice. The AMA has maps of all states, and you can see the states that do have independent practice versus the ones that don't, and they can show the density of physicians versus nurse practitioners pre- and post-independence, and it doesn't change. It doesn't make a difference. The nurse practitioners do not go rural any more than the physicians do. So their whole idea of why it should be passed did not help. We were also able to show, based on a Hattiesburg study that came out last year, that the access, if it's there, it is not as good quality as a physician, physician-led care. We have a number of nurse practitioners that we work with, a number of PAs that we work with, and we want to work as a team, but individually, we think we should be the leaders of the team. And it was very successful this year. We did, we, there were five scope of practice bills 
that were presented uh, in the legislature this year. They had a nurse practitioner independence uh, bill on the House side, one on the Senate side. Um, they had a PA bill to decrease from supervision to collaboration, which was the step the NPs had done before. And then they also had a pharmacy bill this year that came out, which is super scary. The pharmacist wanted to basically practice medicine. They, it was, the bill was put out by a pharmacist senator in Louisiana, and he worked with this, the State Board of Pharmacy, and their idea was that the pharmacist would be able to order test, evaluate test, prescribe, and dispense all from the same location. So that sounds a lot like practicing medicine, right? A little conflict of interest. They were going to create a board within the um, Department of Pharmacy with two medical providers, two uh, pharmacists, uh, nurse practitioners, that they would make some protocols to develop to be able to do that. But as we know, being physicians, not everything is protocol driven. It's the art of medicine. And one of the other themes that healthcare lobbyists often point out is who your allies are often determine whether you win or, or lose. And in our in in local politics, the hospitals are often the the most powerful allies to to try to get. Uh, were the the health systems receptive to to your arguments? How did you interact with the health system side of things? I don't know that they are that receptive to what we're saying. And that may be one of the problems that our state medical society had because they do have to play nice with the other medical people in the sandbox, basically in Louisiana, the hospital associations and our group, Louisiana Physicians for Patients can focus directly on scope of practice. So we can work together, but yet we can be more vocal when they may not be able to be. The hospital associations, as we know, do um, have a financial interest in having lower paid staff, unfortunately. So, so much of it is financially based. We do know scope of practice, really the root cause of it, I totally think is corporate practice of medicine. So you look back on these things with scope of practice, and it wasn't as much of an issue in the past years, but it's becoming more and more. And the same trend is showing up because there are more physicians in hospitals that are corporate owned. And for for our audience, can you tell the audience what is involved in a nurse practitioner who's fresh out of school and starting in emergency medicine, like how much training they've had as compared to a fresh out of residency emergency physician who would start practicing? Well, a number of uh, things, just hours, clinical hours. So unfortunately, um, the nurse practitioner education is, is the depth is different plus the hours. So they have to first off, find their own preceptor for their clinical rotations, which to me is sad because they're paying tuition to a school who does not do this for them. And then the physician, or they could also have a nurse practitioner be their preceptor. That person is not getting paid to teach the student. And 
they don't know in advance the student's history, their qualifications um, sometimes. So it's not standardized at all across any state, across any hospital system or individual practice. Each doctor may practice differently with their um, students. They have maybe 500 clinical hours of coverage and then they have their didactic cart prior to that and then they can sit for their their license to become a licensed nurse practitioner. There are different uh, types of nurse practitioners. For the emergency department, we are required to have acute care nurse practitioners, but it doesn't always work like that either. Physician education, on the other hand, you have 2,000 or 15,000 clinical hours before you even graduate and are able to see patients independently. So the hours is one thing, but the depth of the education is still different. Where physicians are taught to go back to the basic science and why things happen, the nurse practitioners in their training, first off, it's short. They don't have enough time to do it. And it just is not considered in their, in their training. So they do have a lot of algorithm-based education which we find a problem with. Got it. And if an early career uh, physician is listening, listening to this and wondering how they can get involved at the state level, what, what recommendations do you have for getting involved with advocacy? Well, so many. First off, it is the state level. So contact your state medical society. I emailed them, asked what committees I could join and how to get involved, how to be a counselor for your state. So even doing that, we also have local medical societies. So in my North Louisiana section, we have a North Louisiana medical society that I've become involved with. And I kind of think I worked backwards. I went nationally and then have gone to the state, but it's, and you can do that too, but I think you're more effective at your state level and then uh, also work with your national organizations. Um, ASEP and AAEM are both active with workforce issues, and you can make a difference either way. But each state is is for scope of practice is dependent there. Got it. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here: I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, Filter them by your preferences and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. 
So let's transition to the to your time at at uh, ASEP with the workforce section. What were the big issues nationally that you were dealing with? First, how that happened when I contacted Dr. Sandy Schneider about this workforce issues, she recommended that I join the workforce section. So I went to my first meeting at the scientific assembly that right now there, the attendance wasn't that great because in the past, the workforce section had been uh, more when they were deciding grandfathering for family medicine into emergency medicine. And it hasn't been a big push for scope of practice in the workforce. So no. I was at the meeting going, where are all the people? This should be huge right now. There, With the attendance not being high, I volunteered for newsletter editor and one uh, without um, other competition. And so I've been doing a trying to do the workforce newsletter and learned a whole bunch with that. Um, after that, I was looking at some of the bylaws and we needed to redo the bylaws for ASEP's workforce because it was the older group. So we redid those and voted on them as a section. We're gaining ground. We made a Facebook page last year and trying to get more involvement with that. But we really need every emergency physician involved. What we can do is post on the newsletter, on the Facebook, on social media to spread the word. Because the more articles you read and the more education you get about it, you realize the problem and you need to tell other people. One of the big issues in ASAP in, in general last year was the workforce report that, that came out and, and basically said that there were, there were going to be too many emergency physicians were going to be oversupplied by the year 2030 with emergency physicians. How did that impact your, your time on the workforce committee? Huge. Actually, my first year on workforce uh, committee, I was asked to be on the rural task force for ASEP as well. So I learned a lot about the shortages in the rural locations, which is all in the central United States, and more people are practicing in the larger markets. So there is a shortage in the rural areas. So you look at the workforce data, and there is projected to be a oversupply of emergency physicians on based on like 9,000 by the year 2030 because more physicians are doing residencies and partially because there are more emergency medicine residencies that have opened. Different hospitals and contract management groups are opening residencies to fill their spots and that decreases supply and demand and can drive down the market pay. With that, there are more residencies in the urban areas and the cities, so people will stay there. There still are less physicians that will go to the rural markets. Yeah, I work in rural North Carolina, and if you didn't know anything about this, this workforce uh, report, it would be very surprising to find out that there's an oversupply. Our group has the majority of our group is non-EM trained and it's not by choice. It is by, actually they've, they've tried to hire more EM trained emergency physicians and, and it's just really hard in, in rural North Carolina to, to hire boarded emergency physicians. When you dug into rural workforce issues, 
What was your sense of effective ways to get ABEM certified emergency physicians to work in rural areas? I really think that we do need a better job of trying to get them there. And part of it is lifestyle because you don't have as much of a pressure to see patients quite as fast as some of the urban and, and bigger markets. You can have more time to visit with your patients. Um, the nurses know everyone. We've got, we had some great nurses in, in my rural locations in Louisiana. So that was fantastic. The ability to do 24 hour shifts sometimes is nice. I think um, more people should try rural medicine because of these benefits, but you just have to be willing to drive sometimes a little bit. And if you, if you had kind of a magic wand at the, at the leg, at the Louisiana legislature and, and could do, could make changes for public policy to get more physicians in rural areas, what, what would be on your wish list? Hmm. Part of the problem I know right now is transfers. So we have a mm. ton of transfer issues if you're in a rural hospital, because we know right now with the bed shortage everywhere, then it's harder to get transfers in. And that became evident during COVID. And even now with the problems with staffing and across the country. So I know Mississippi recently started a state transfer center. So they are able to come together and get patients transferred a whole lot easier. So I would love to have a, an improved statewide transfer center because it's not as dangerous for a patient out in a rural location then. The other thing that I see in a lot of rural markets is the replacement of physicians with non-physicians. So you want to recruit more physicians to stay there and make it a desirable place. One dynamic of your leadership at, at ASAP is that you're also a leader at AAEM. Um, what's the secret to success of being in, in both AAEM and, and ASAP, and what are some of the differences that you noticed? I think success is, um, I love what I'm doing. I love physicians and patients. And so I think that comes across. I don't feel like I have an agenda with, with that part of it. And I'm pretty transparent. I just have enjoyed working with both groups in different ways. Uh, AAM seems a little, it's smaller, but more aggressive. And I think we've been able to bring some of the scope of practice feistiness into ASAP and to make a difference there. We had some success on helping ASAP know that it is a problem and they did change the scope of practice um, plan uh, the, the what's it called the bylaws last year as far as what their recommendations on direct patient care and indirect patient care through ASAP. So that is something that we've been able to take and give to different legislators and give to different hospitals that this is the ASAP recommended um, standard of care for supervision. So let's let's take a, a bit of a step back and discuss what motivates you to do all of this, uh, all this great work. You do medical missions and 
Um, and from my understanding, faith is a big part of what, what inspires you both in the United States and when you do these medical missions. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how your faith informs what you do and and specifically about the missions? Oh, most definitely. That's my favorite job. So um, when I was a med student, I did my first mission trip to Jamaica and loved the aspect of getting to help people that just didn't have access to this kind of, of care. So I've been involved in missions throughout the Baptist Mission Board and through my church and other small groups. So in learning about this and how I like medicine, I like to have the continuity in the country. There's a book called When Healthcare Hurts that goes along the vein of the book When Helping Hurts. So it Mm -hmm. shows how to do medical missions in the right way and in a really good way to help the people there where you have consistent on the ground return. So I found a group called Kids Connect for Jesus that goes to Belize, and they have been doing so for 12 to 15 years. We just had our 49th trip last week, and they go every 90 days. We keep records, we give medications, and see a lot of return patients. I've been going for about five years. My family's involved. My daughter goes, my husband and my mom, when we can. So it's seeing that, you see the need there, and it's still all about patience. You know, I have been gifted with my knowledge and ability to help others, and I feel like that's what I should do, whether it's in the United States to help with the advocacy or whether it's in another country to help them. It's very inspiring. Thank you. You should come. Yeah, I <laughs> Let's let's chat after the, the podcast. Yeah, and we also have AAEM has our national meeting coming up in New Orleans this year. So we're the host city for me as a Louisianian. So we are planning a super cool event uh, the day before it starts. The, um, the scientific assembly is a Saturday through Tuesday, I think, April 21st. So on that Friday, April 20th, we're having a field trip to the Capitol in Baton Rouge. We're working with our lobbyists and some other legislators to actually go there. We can talk to them and see what are some hints to learn how to speak to the legislators and not be intimidated because we really are the experts in this and we're telling them how to do it. And then we will have some legislators there to do some mock interviews to get some practice. It really is was scary when I first started calling them and making cold calls and having visits in person. But after you do it, you get your confidence and you realize the problem, first of all, because you really want to help patients and keep them healthy and safe. And then you realize you know more than they do. And with all of the advocacy work that you do at the state level, national level, um, your clinical work, your international work, What makes you the most hopeful about the future of emergency medicine? I have seen things change, and even in the last three years, it's being discussed more than it's ever been. Doctors are getting involved in every specialty. The more doctors come together and are vocal to tell patients that they have a choice to see physician, to tell the legislators this isn't right, so you can look at the trend 
and there's more physician involvement than ever. So now physicians know, now we need to make sure that the word is getting out to patients as well, because they need to understand that there is a difference and that they can request a physician. That's one of the bills Texas is wanting to propose is the patient bill of rights, and that is included in that. I've seen ASEP has already uh, evolved and they're talking about scope of practice more than they have been. We have the lawsuit uh, that AAM is involved with in California working um, against uh, scope, of, well, I'm sorry, the corporate practice of medicine with Envision. So things that are done without people talking about them, they just can happen, but the more active you are and the more people know, you can make changes. And one question I always ask at the end of um, these discussions is what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? So um, let's see, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the PA and Nurse Practitioner in Medicine. So that is uh, written by Dr. Uh, Rebecca Bernard, and she is one of the founders of the National Group Physicians for Patient Protection. And if you're not involved in that, that is super. It, they have a um, official group to join and the dues are super reasonable. I recommend that everyone join and you get some advocacy ideas and group thought there. And they also do have a Facebook page, but we really need more people to be involved as members and to help financially. But that book is incredible because it details how this came to be. You can look at the timeline and it will give you ideas on how to speak with your legislators as well. And PPP is also working on doing a public uh, campaign and with some PR spots to try to educate the public as well. Because if you think about it, if they really knew all of the things that were happening behind the scenes, that their care might be being diminished by someone who may not have the qualifications that they want, they would be upset about it. That's, uh, that's understandable. Mm -hmm. And if, if somebody gets inspired by, by your work, whether it's um, on the advocacy side, ASEP side, AEM, international, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? They can uh, email me, ddfletcher at mindspring.com, M-I-N-D-S-P-R-I-N-G. That is a super old email but my friends and, and uh, colleagues know, so I'm not going to change it to a Gmail right now. But I'm happy to talk to anyone. Um, we Residents, students, everyone does need to get involved because it affects you. It's going to affect uh, your career decisions. It's going to affect what specialty you choose. It's going to affect you. And then one day it's going to affect you because you're going to be the patient. You know, you're going to look up from the stretcher and you're like, oh, my goodness, are you a physician? And you want mm. to make sure that you have the right person taking care of you at the right time. I agree. Well, Dr. Fletcher, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This has been uh, really inspiring. The work that you do on behalf of emergency physicians and their patients really is a testament to your, um, your belief in um, the power that, that physicians have to impact the system and, and be a force for good. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you're doing this. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us, 
or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EMWorkforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.